Hello, world. This is Codebreaker. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. You've probably done something or you know someone who has done something like Chris Dancy is doing. Uh, right now, I have an Apple Watch on first gen and a uh, Fitbit HR. But not really, because it doesn't stop there. Um, yeah, so I always do an ambient sound sample every 15 to 20 seconds, and then an, uh, a light sample when the phone's not covered by a pocket or something. Obviously, I'm also measuring altitude, temperature, humidity, uh, <laughs> proximity to other uh, Wi-Fi devices and other connected people. Seriously? Seriously. Chris Dancy is arguably the most quantified self in America, maybe the world. Quantified self is probably a phrase you've heard before. It's about using data collection with wearable technology to understand better how you go through life and improve your existence with the power of that knowledge. Companies all over the country are using fitness trackers to incentivize their workers to be more healthy. But with Dancy, it gets weirder. I shouldn't eat after 7 p.m. I shouldn't go to bed after 10 p.m. Um, I need to be in REM sleep by at least 12.30, eat within 15 minutes upon awaking, play with the dog for at least five minutes, try to get in the shower before noon, <laughs> just because I, if I don't get in before noon, I just skip it. I need to be up by six so I can get my. We'll get back to Chris Dancy and what his obsession hath wrought. Point is, our idea of the self is changing more rapidly than ever, thanks to technology. I'm not just talking about digital avatars in video games. I'm talking about using hardware and software to change our bodies and our minds, using new technologies to make them better. There are questions about legality, about ethics, about mortality. And as per usual, the technology is arriving before we have the chance to answer them. On Codebreaker, we decipher our complicated feelings about technology by asking straightforward questions with a sense of humor, a sense of awe, and hey, sometimes a sense of dread. In our second season, we've got one question in mind, four little words. The answer isn't so easy. Oh, jeez. Uh, oh. Uh, uh. I hope so. Can it save us? We are asking this question about one kind of technology in every episode. Today, introducing hardware and the software that runs it to our most intimate devices, ourselves. We're going to hear from two people advocating for cyborg rights, a guy who's putting on a mechanical suit that gives him an ability he thought he'd lost forever, and we're going to hear about a robotic procedure that could save your dignity, but not without some pain. Do you find that you fully trust the robot? So, the augmented self, can it save us? Hey, remember, there's a special code in every one of our episodes, so listen closely. Humans are having a moment. We're living longer and better than ever. At the same time, technology is seeing a convergence of epic proportions. Hardware is getting ever smaller and more powerful, while software running on that hardware collects and crunches data at ever faster speeds. Of course, this all depends a little bit on where you look. As the sci-fi author William Gibson once said, the future is already here, it's just not very evenly distributed yet. Two people who are living in that future right now are Moon Rebus and Neil Harbison. They are cyborgs. They've augmented their biological selves with artificial components. They're also co-founders of the Cyborg Foundation. 
Yep, that's the thing. The Cyborg Foundation is an international organization that, that wants to just help people become cyborgs, like applying new senses, new sensory organs to the body to extend the perception of reality. The goal? Defending cyborg rights, promoting cyborgism as an art movement, and more. My name is Neil Harbison, and I'm a cyborg artist. My name is Mon Rivas. I'm a cyborg artist. Can you each tell me about the things that you've added to your body? I have an antenna implanted in my head. And I have an implant in my arm. That allows me to extend my perception of color beyond the visual spectrum. That allows me to feel earthquakes anywhere in the planet in real time. How does that work? Yeah, it's connected to online seismographs. So every time that a seismograph gets a new data, it travels <laughs> in, into my arm. So depending on the intensity of the earthquake, the intensity of the vibration is stronger or weaker. What, why did you choose that? Imagine myself being alone in the planet and I'm thinking, how could I perceive movement if there's no people? I realize that many things move, not only humans. And the planet is constantly rotating and constantly shaking. Are you yeah. feeling anything right now? It, it, was, it was just, yeah, a second ago. Really? Yeah, very small though. It, it feels like having two heartbeats, like my own and then the earth beat. So, Neil, you were born colorblind. So I had black and white vision, and the antenna that is implanted in my head gives me a vibration inside my skull. Depending on the light frequency, each color creates a different vibration in my bone that then becomes a sound. So then I can feel the, the vibrations of color through bone conduction, and this allows me to sense all the visual spectrum and beyond. Are you ever self-conscious about it? The issue with my sense is that I had to create a, a new sensory organ, which is an antenna that sticks out from my head. So this is very visible, and people stop me because they see that I have an antenna. It's usually the same group of people that try to pull the antenna. It's drunk women. Whenever I see a middle-aged drunk woman, I just run away. <laughs> Are you getting tones into your head right now? Yes, now I'm hearing the colors around me. If we could hear the frequency of red, we would hear a specific note, but we can't because it's uh, too high. But if we could hear the frequency of red, we would hear a note between F and F sharp. And then orange is a bit higher, and then yellow is a bit higher. So I'm actually hearing the light, the notes of the light frequencies. It's not an arbitrary relationship between color and sound. Augmenting yourself is potentially dangerous because it puts you potentially far ahead of other regular people who are not cyborgs, right? We don't compare ourselves with other humans. We compare ourselves with other species. For example, I think we should all try to extend our perception at least to the level of infrared and ultraviolet so we don't find it supernatural to perceive these elements because they are very natural for other species. Why do you want people to see that stuff? I think if, if we have a deeper relation with our planet or like the things that are going on, then maybe with our behavior would also change. Do you think it can save us? The use of technology to change ourselves, I think it will save our species. If we want to survive for thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, we need to change our bodies. Neil and Moon are trying to make cyborgism, this idea of making yourself better with technology, something that is more accepted in a world that doesn't always appreciate what is strange and new. But what if cyborgism isn't new? For this idea, let's hear from a futurist and author named Amy Webb. The real truth is that about a quarter of us are cyborgs and we may not even realize it, right? We, a quarter of us are augmented. How do you mean? Um, how do I mean? 
Well, if you are taking any kind of antidepressant, you're part of a, an experimental biohacking. It's, it's what we can see versus what is invisible. Mm. My uncle, when he was 16, became a cyborg. He had a heart condition and was the youngest recipient of a pacemaker. So he was a cyborg as well. You know, whether we're wearing braces or we're getting platelet-rich plasma therapy treatments or we're embedding RFID chips under our thumbs. We are all trying to augment ourselves through some form of science and technology for the purpose of improving our daily lives. Amy Webb, her new book is called The Signals Are Talking, Why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream. In 2016, the idea of self-augmentation has a lot of permutations. You can be a grinder modifying your own body with DIY hardware of all kinds, Or maybe you work for the company in Sweden that is putting radio frequency identification or RFID chips into people's hands so they can get access to an office building and pay for things with a wave of their palm. Or you could be a biohacker who is thinking in great detail about what food exactly you are putting into your body and how you work out. The commonality here is self-improvement. But there are also people who want to augment themselves in a way that is really just trying to get back to their former self, to become the person they once were, or something close to it. When Steve Sanchez was 17 and a senior in high school, his life changed forever in midair. He was riding his BMX bike with a friend, took a jump, contorted in the wrong way. When he landed and wiped out, he felt a strange tingling in his back. Not good. Ambulance came. At the hospital, he was diagnosed with a spinal cord injury. For Steve, that injury meant paralysis from the waist down. Twelve years later, as a 29-year-old guy in a wheelchair, Steve faces the reality of his injury every day. But he's also something he never thought he would be. He's a test pilot for a company based in Berkeley, California called Sudex, which makes a kind of lightweight exoskeleton, a powered prosthesis that helps wheelchair users like Steve stand, walk, maybe someday much more than that. It's called Phoenix. Now I don't have a cumbersome device surrounding me. Um, But also now that I'm also eye level with most people, the eye levelness makes a big portion of how they perceive you. Sudex device is basically powered prosthesis. I'm wearing leg braces I, that I can already use and walk in. Now I'm just adding power to it. The, the full suit's about, you know, 30 pounds, roughly, pretty lightweight. But the bigger thing is that it comes apart. The leg braces will stay on me or I can take them off individually. And then the back is uh, where all the electronics are and all the motors are. And then we do have a back brace that goes all the way up and it has straps that uh, go around kind of like a backpack. And that actually is only about 12 to 15 pounds where I can easily pick that up with one arm, put it on myself, and off I go. Do you think that this thing in its current state makes a really, really important change to how you feel as a person and your sense of self? It's a very important thing because in the wheelchair, I'm basically floating above the ground. I don't ever touch the ground. So I'm not really connected as everybody else who's walking on the ground. And then once I get in the suit, all of a sudden it's like, bing, a little light bulb went off and it's like, hey, everybody's here again. (laughs) He does have an idea of what these suits could one day look like. My true envision of future is basically like a pair of pants. You put on it, nobody else can tell that you're using a device to make you walk. Um, they'll look like everybody else, they'll function just like everybody else, and you won't, you won't be able to tell at that point. 
This is a bit of a tricky issue because some people with disabilities don't support trying to reverse or hide them. Robotic exoskeletons like the Phoenix are one of the areas with the most promise for people with Steve's point of view. A point of view he wants to change, literally, by getting out of his wheelchair, by augmenting his body with this technology. One of my favorite sayings is, uh, I am not the robot, I wear the robot. (laughs) Is there anything you want to do, like physically, that you can't do right now that you would like to do? most physical thing that I would love to do, and I've already said it numerous times to the engineers in the other room over here, that I want to run. (laughs) Yeah. Running is a sensation you cannot replace. So with running, do you think you'll get there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd say five to seven years for running. You plan to run? Mm Mm-hmm. Steve can't wait to run. But he'll probably have to. There's huge investment in exoskeletons, but the industry's not quite there yet. Danielle Moya has been looking at this industry. We visited her down at the Tech Insider offices for details. What is the market like in 2016 for this? It's still really early days, but there's been a lot of progress made. I mean, we're, we're starting to see a lot of success cases and a lot of movement toward getting these commercialized. Companies like Hyundai and Panasonic are working on this. Also, even the, you know, the U.S. military is investing a lot in this, too. So there's a lot of funding going into this. How much do they cost? So it depends also what you want the exoskeleton to do. So if it's just an exoskeleton to sort of help reduce lower back stress um, for somebody who lifts heavy objects, those tend to be around the 10 grand range. But then there's ones that are a lot more expensive, and those are the ones where they're giving, you know, people with spinal cord injuries the ability to walk again. And that can cost anywhere from, like, 80000 to, you know, a million. And the military one you mentioned? The military is working on one that's $80 million, but that has a lot of capabilities that we don't really need unless you're constantly trying to repel bullets. How far away are we from seeing this more widely? So I know that Panasonic, the exoskeleton they have to help with lifting heavy objects, they've had their own workers using them. Mm. So, I mean, it is in use. Um, It hasn't been, you know, sold widely. And I'm sure in a decade you will see some big news about it. Danielle Moya is a transportation reporter for Business Insider. Danielle, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Stick with us. We'll be back in a minute. Nowhere is the idea of the augmented self more prevalent than in California and Silicon Valley. We could talk about plastic surgery, or we could talk about Soylent, the protein drink that promises to deliver you the stuff you need to work faster and live better. Whether or not it tastes like pancake batter, it totally does, by the way. Silicon Valley is full of young companies built by young people. A lot of them, young men. And in a place like this, where image is important, A company like Restoration Robotics has a business plan to fight the receding hairline by harvesting hair follicles from the back of your head and putting them in the front of your scalp. This form of self-augmentation is tedious work, so a robot with artificial intelligence and 3D vision does it. Sandra Upson, executive editor of Wired's Back Channel, went there. 
I'm in a small, bright operating room in Palo Alto, watching a 40-year-old software engineer named Neil get his hair shaved off. He's getting ready for a surgical robot to start restoring his hairline. I uh, thought I was at a point where there's still enough hair to not make it obvious, but um, I saw it going fast, so I wanted to be proactive about it. Neil still has lots of hair, with a little thinning around his widow's peak, but he says he just doesn't feel as good about himself anymore. Just a little insecurity, I guess. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to reestablish this hairline here. That's David Berman. He's a dermatologist who spent the last decade helping to test the hair transplant robot called Artis. He snaps a photo of Neil's scalp with an iPad and loads it into a computer. As you can see, we have the image of its scalp. I'll delineate the areas where we're going to perform the Artis robotic procedure. He draws a squiggle across the screen. That squiggle is going to be Neil's new hairline. To create it, the robot pokes tiny holes in Neil's bare patches. That's where hairs will get inserted. Then the robot plucks about 2,000 follicles from the back of Neil's head. Human technicians then grab those hairs with tweezers and insert them into his scalp by hand. We're going to do 2,200 grafts, 2,050 for this area of the scalp, and the frontal hairline you can see, I want it to be naturally irregular. Berman taps in a couple more settings, and that's it. Neil pops some painkillers and gets his scalp numbed. He's ready. Neil is sitting with his face cradled in a headrest, phone in front of him, earbuds in his ears. The robot's burly arm aims a needle at the back of Neil's head. It grabs a follicle and pulls it out, over and over. And then we take it out and put it into a petri dish and then it's ready for implantation. Neil, how are you doing? Good. Good. No pain? Nope. Uh, yeah, I could just tell that something is uh, doing something, but it's not, it's not sharp, it's not painful. I wouldn't say it's massage-like or therapeutic, but... How does it compare to going to the dentist? Uh, it's a lot easier. Good morning. Welcome to the 5 a.m. Miracle. I am Out of Jeff curiosity, Sanders. what did you choose to bring with you to listen to? Uh, podcasts. <laughs> I'm big into uh, personal development, so it's uh, the 5 a.m. Miracle. So while the robot is dipping its needle in and out of his skin, Neil is listening to this. And this is the podcast dedicated to dominating your day before breakfast. Earlier that morning, I'd met a guy named David Dufresne who'd had his hair transplanted three days earlier. Maybe it's a coincidence, but he was also a morning life hacker. I get up every day at 4 o'clock and go to the gym. Before, and I work out from like 4 to 7, and then I work from 7 to 6 at night. So I've done that for the last 15 years. I was sensing some commonalities here. My goal is to be the best that I can be. So that takes care of everything. That means my shape, my weight. If I can fix it with hair transplants, then I'll do it. David showed me his shaved scalp. It was covered in thousands of red dots where follicles had been plucked or inserted. It was amazing to me that I was actually able to go back to work so fast and not feel like I had any types of effects. There was minimal bleeding. There was minimal, what I feel like, swelling. I asked him why he did the procedure. I'm a real estate broker. I'm on my own brokerage. 
So you have to have an appearance, okay? So it was important to me. Important to the tune of seven to $20,000. That's how much the procedure costs. It takes a full day or even two, and it can be another year before the hair grows in fully. I wanted to check in with Neil again. I found him during his lunch break, stretched out relaxing on an exam table. Do you find that you fully trust the robot? I do. I mean, I, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, 2,000 follicles, uh, I can only imagine a human doing that. A human having to do it 2,000 times versus the robot. Um, I trust the robot. <laughs> or did you get a chance to look at yourself? I did. I, it, it made me feel good about doing this procedure because I don't think I look good with no hair. <laughs> One room over, a clinical trial is in full swing. Restoration Robotics and the FDA want to know if this robot can also safely insert hairs into a person's scalp. For now, that last step is done by humans. But if the company has its way, that won't be for long. That was Sandra Upson from Back Channel. Robots are driven by software, and software is eating the world, as the common tech phrase goes. Remember Chris Dancy, the quantified self guy who we heard from in the very beginning? A few decades ago, software was eating Chris Dancy's life, and he was eating too much. So I said, what, what do I need to fix? So I just started saying, well, gosh, my health is pretty bad. I could try going on a diet, and they never work. I could try maybe changing this. or ch-. And then it just dawned on me, how am I spending my time? And I thought, well, gosh, all that information's here. What is this? When are you going to return to this information that you're collecting right now? So I don't return to it on any real-time basis because it's being cataloged. And I have worn enough sensors that I've become one. Uh, I can look at other people and tell them their heart rates. I can look at other people, tell them their blood pressures, their temperatures. I can look at a room and tell you what's going on inside a room. You develop extra senses. Um, but I keep them because there's still times where I just will have something really anomalous that I don't understand. What are the things you know about yourself now? Because now that you've become this sensor, I shouldn't eat after 7 p.m. I shouldn't go to bed after 10 p.m. Um, I need to be in REM sleep by at least 12.30 on a day where you're not, say, say you're not in bed by 10, does yeah. the data start to mount up in a way that freaks you out? Yep. So in 2014, I really had like what I call data PTSD. You know, I had weaponized my calendar and my data so much so that I had no friends. I had no one in my life. And by 2015, it was, you know, I shot a special for Showtime. And you can just see how I'm gaunt and I'm sad and I'm scary. And what had happened at that point was I'd become so fine-tuned with the feedback loop between my systems and how I was living my life that, you know, I found out the most fundamental truth about data collection, which is if you want to change something, you have to get rid of everyone in your life. So like if all your friends are smokers, you're probably a smoker. Well, what I found was I could replace those people, but even those people would start to change. As they changed, they had to keep changing in line with my values or it didn't make sense to keep them around. So because I had this feedback loop basically helping me understand my life better, it just became easier to avoid humans because there was less variation in the data set. You have to remove people for life to get any more efficient, and that's what we're doing. How do you feel about that? 
I'm afraid that we're turning ourselves into a giant collective of people who need to be efficient, so efficient that we act more like the machines that are helping us be efficient than like the people who helped us decide we can manage our time better. That sounds a lot like the kind of scheduled action of how you monitor your own behavior and model your own behavior, no? It's, it's, it's identical. Choreographed systems are choreographed so they can be efficient, not so they can be kind. I just, it's hard because I've, you know, for four years, I really tried to like scream at the world, please listen, this is important. We don't get another chance to buy ourselves back. This is that point in history right now. The computers are on your bodies, in your homes, and in your cars. You do not get another chance to go back. But you're still wearing this stuff. The reality is I want to find a way to harness all of this technology to be in service of me, for me, and for the people around me in spite of the cost psychologically and, and, and I think just emotionally that it takes on people. I've seen so many people out who go for a run and then say, I can't, my, my watch isn't charged up. See, you don't get better by counting steps. You get better by taking them. And I'm afraid we're in a time where, you know, we, we, we only care about what we measure because we don't know how to, we don't know how to care about anything else. Right. And I mean, I, I'm at this point, I just feel like a clown who doesn't want to be a clown wearing a clown suit at a birthday party because no one else wants to entertain the kids. Do you think that this technology has saved you? I'm probably alive because of it, but I don't know. I think it's probably saved me physically, but I think spiritually it probably bankrupted me. Chris Dancy, thanks a lot for talking to me. Thank you so much. For our final conversation on the augmented self, we called up maybe the most famous face of cyborgism in pop culture today, a face with a golden visor, Lieutenant Jordy LaForge of Star Trek The Next Generation fame, a.k.a. LeVar Burton. Ben, why? Why have you sought me out for this conversation? (laughs) So uh, we should acknowledge the obvious here, right? You're a guy who played a character on The Next Generation who was augmented, blind from birth. Jordy LaForge uh, has this visor, and it actually makes him see better, even monitor, like, vital signs of crewmates, right? Jordy can see all of what we know to be the electromagnetic spectrum, everything from infrared to X-ray, uh, which means Jordy sees, and everything in between, Jordy actually sees sound. So much like the guy with the antenna in his head, yeah. um, Jordy has the ability to access information that is beyond our known senses as human beings. How soon do you think we'll be seeing versions of Jordy LaForge or something like him in real life? Well, here's the thing. I mean, just look at all of the technology that the franchise Star Trek has inspired. We carried pads around on the Enterprise before Apple invented them. And I know for a fact that we are working on a prostheses for the blind that are modeled on Jordy's visor. Mm. Literature and science fiction literature specifically has always invited us to envision the what if. And it is, it is that invitation into the what if that has propelled so much of the technology that has been developed over the last 60, 70 years. 
let's talk a little bit about the episode. Who whose story struck you? Well, they all struck me. Um, at first, my initial response to the dancer who has the implant that puts her in touch with earthquakes all over the planet. Yeah, Moon Rebus. Yeah, yeah. My initial reaction was, boy, that's really fringe. But the more I listened to her talk about her relationship with the earth and and what that sensor has brought into her life as an artist, I had to let go of my prejudice. Um the same with the guy who is measuring every aspect of every moment right, Chris of Dancy. his life. Right. I thought at the end, I thought his final comments were very telling. He said that it may have saved his life because before he was overweight and morbidly obese and that it was that kind of attention to measuring his movement that brought him into closer awareness of how he was spending his time. But he sacrificed right. his contact with other people in the process. And that's, that is a perfect example of where we need to develop balance along with our use of these technologies. Because if, if it's simply going to cut us off from that which makes us human, then what are we doing? And it's interesting to me, I mean, you, you represent a character to many fans of Star Trek that is the most optimistic view of the future. I believe that to be true. Jordy is is preternaturally optimistic in his view of of the world and his place in it. So do you think that introducing more technology to the human body might save the human race someday? I'm not looking, Ben, for technology to save us. However, I do believe that that technology, when used appropriately, can make our journey here better, easier, more enjoyable. It can help us fill gaps that, for one reason or another, are missing in our lives. Listening to the guy talk about the exoskeleton that he's using yeah. and, and how that technology can help people who are bound into wheelchairs actually experience life at eye level with the rest of the world. These are the kinds of miracles that are possible when we get it right. I think I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to say maybe it can save us in certain you really, scenarios. You, you think so? In well, I think it can in, save it can save individuals, right? It can save right. them from certain things. Um, it, here's my final word. Yeah. Technology may be able to save us if we can save us from ourselves. All right. I like it. Okay. LeVar Burton, a.k.a. Jordy LaForge, thank you so much for talking this out with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. By the way, if you want access to all of this season's episodes, you don't have to wait for them to come out. You do have to find the code in this episode, though. Want to get started? I went on a week-long trip recently. My home base was the city of Seneri. Let's look back at my data tracking devices and see what I was up to. Sunday, I only took 31 steps. Monday, I walked five miles. Tuesday, I slept for 20 hours. Wednesday, I woke up at 10 a.m. Thursday, I rode a bike 13 miles an hour. Friday, I drank four glasses of water. Saturday, I went running for 31 minutes. Once I looked at it all together, I reflected on who I am. 
Once you get it, you can input your code at the website codebreaker.codes. Our show is produced by Claire Tennisketter. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Our engineer, Jake Gorski. We got production support from Levi Sharp, Adrian Ma, Catherine Giraudot, and Marketplace Tech producer Stephanie Hughes. Special thanks to Sandra Upson and Jesse Hempel. Marketplace's executive producer is Sitara Nieves, and Marketplace's vice president is Deborah Clark. Our theme music is by Mux Mool. Our show is made in partnership with the nice folks at Tech Insider and their robot overlord, Dan Bobkoff. You can get updated on their stories and much more at businessinsider.com. Just don't believe what they say about us. Whenever I see a middle-aged drunk woman, I just run away. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Codebreaker is a Marketplace production from APM. APM.